We wish you a Merry Christmas, Motown style. I'm Charlie. And I'm Corey. And this week we will be discussing a Motown classic, the Jackson 5 Christmas album. Corey picked this. He's our Christmas music aficionado <laughs> of this duo. I've been hearing a lot of it lately, but uh, yeah, it is tis the season, so we gotta do it. And I was excited that he picked this one because this was a consideration for me earlier, but I just wanted to talk about Elvis. So that's what I did. Hey, and- that, was, that was a good pick. The album, the Elvis album was good. I heard the first track off it in uh, the store the other day as the universe has been, has been blessing us. Yay. Um, uh, you know, and, and it, it yeah. was like, oh, I know that song. This one was a surprise for me because as much as I thought I knew this whole album, I didn't. So oh. it's, it's it was a cool exploration down the Christmas front with these guys. Yeah. Well, I did because I actually have this album. This is uh, not just a Christmas classic, in my opinion. I think this is a straight up Motown classic, honestly. Um, I, I agree with you. I, there's so much Motown on this record. It's ridiculous. Oh, yeah. And of course, we're going to get into all of that. But um, first, like we do for a little background. So this is the Jackson 5, a uh, very famous group. You all at least know of the lead singer, Michael Jackson, I'm sure. But this was how he started off in this band with his brothers, Jackie, Jermaine, Tito, and Marlon. And uh, they started off on Motown Records. And 1970, they were unstoppable. So they debuted at the end of the previous year, and on January 8th, 1970, they topped the charts with their debut single, I Want You Back, and it just kept going. By the time this album had come out, they'd had four number one hits within one year, and uh, this was their fourth album in less than a year. Uh, Barry Gordy probably figured we're going to do it while it's hot. We're going to have the boys put out a Christmas album. And really, the only tea for this album is really the fact that these boys were worked hard and they were kids. Oh, yeah. I arguably the first boy band of all time. Yeah, but they did actually play instruments, too. Well, true. But I mean, they were what, like an average of like 13, 14, I believe, at this time. Maybe uh, an average. I'm, I'm saying some were younger. Uh, but... Yeah, I don't think that would be inaccurate they were young michael was the youngest and he was 12 when this album came out and i know at the time they got a lot of comparisons to the osmond family another singing family but they were a different demographic they appealed to i think you could say and well they certainly didn't have the musicianship of uh, motown frankly it's really motown overall that's uh, guiding this to the next level because they were a factory of hits by this point. They had been for several years. But what I find so interesting is this is just a perfect example of the Motown machine at work because uh, to put out four albums in uh, one year is amazing. But the Motown way was uh, we don't put out multiple singles from albums. Motown albums typically had two singles at most. It didn't really matter what else was on there in the eyes of the label heads, as long as you had the hits. And, well, the Jacksons had the hits. And that was all that mattered to them. But Holiday Album was another thing. This was just them kind of following their pattern. Many Motown acts had done Christmas albums. The Temptations put one out this year as well. So this is a just an example of the Motown machine, but... As commercialized as it all is, there's no denying uh, the 
craft in these recordings through these early Motown songs. And that's really evident here, I believe, too. You are right on the same page. A lot of people, especially first time listeners, might not know that we really don't rap back and forth about how we feel or or what we feel about these albums beforehand, Charlie and I, but you're, you are right there with me on this one. I'm so glad you used the word uh, the Motown machine because it's exactly what we're looking at here. But then I'm so glad that you went after that and talked about the craftsmanship and the amount of artists and probably going to use this word a bunch. I usually do genius that were uh, inside of this whole process. This this isn't just an artist jumping into the studio and recording some Christmas hits. This is a product of a whole entire, man, you, you got me on it, the Motown machine, and I love it. I mean, that's all I can say because this easily could have just been a contractual obligation. They could have just half-assed it, but no, this is a full product, a fully realized album perfectly tailored to these young men at this point in time. And uh, that's what I find so impressive about it, even though I do have cynicism about how it was produced, because I think it's ridiculous to work children that much in the span of a year, or, Mm. well, anybody really, because they weren't really getting paid as much as we would think, but especially considering the fact that these were literally kids, doing more work than many adults do because four albums, that's not a joke, but I can't be too mad when it turns out so good. <laughs> yeah, that, that's real. You're giving me goosebumps over here, but that's that's the bottom line of it. You can't be mad when we get something like this. No, we can't. And uh, well, we'll get more into why it's so great in a bit. But first off, yeah, it was released in October of 1970. And At the time, holiday albums couldn't chart on the Billboard 200, so it did sell well. Interestingly, Motown did not report their sales and shipments records to the RIAA (laughs) until 1977. They wanted to keep that in-house, so we actually don't really know how much this album actually sold. I think it's safe to say it sold at least a million in the U.S., I'm sure. I I would have to say that's a safe bet. I mean... It went through three iterations from start to finish, right? Three releases? Yeah, there have been several re-releases of it over the years, too. And certainly those have sold some, I'm sure. I don't know if they're the top-selling things ever, but I'm sure they do all right each year. And this is the only time Michael Jackson did a holiday album. He didn't do it as an adult, so the are. So if you wanted that, this was your only choice for that. So... I'm sure that got some more people to buy it as well. That's a neat point. Another, While we're here, another one that I wanted to ask you, I couldn't find. It seemed like the streaming numbers were down for this album from what we're used to seeing. Any insight on that one? I really, I really have no idea. No. My guess is that's just so seasonal. Heard. That's my best guess for this. And certain... I mean, this one isn't quite at the top of the streaming charts. I mean, we're seeing the Christmas songs invading the charts right now. Like, none of these are in the top 10 currently. They do seem to have a hold on one song in particular, but these don't seem to be the first choices for the streaming era listeners, which I think is a shame. I actually really think 
more people should listen to this album because it is a bit different from your typical Christmas fair that we hear every year. Because, uh, I mean, we are already, we're hearing the same old songs and they get the play for a good reason. They're fine songs, but it's always nice to hear something different, I think. I agree with the amount and the saturation and the length now that we, um, for the most part as society, have deemed it acceptable to be listening to Christmas music. Why not throw it all out there? Um, there are some really great ones on here that I feel do still have a place on the local radio run. And I feel like you you made a great point with the streaming audience these days. They might not be akin to those classics the same way that we are. Um, and, and that might be the reason why that's not getting the play out there. That's a well, wild thought. It depends on the song is what I will say, too, because... Right. Uh, yeah, because, I mean, right now, the Hot 100 does count all streams, so any song can chart high, and, yeah, Mariah Carey's back at number one again. That song's been around forever with the charts, and then even older than that, Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree and Jingle Bell Rock are older than us, <laughs> and they're very high on the charts. Yeah, I, we got to start doing this video because Charlie knew I was going straight to Mariah Carey when I pointed at him. I thought I read that today. So she's back to number one on the yeah. charts with her Christmas song. As she does every year, but at, there's even older songs right behind her. Heard. So I don't know what it is, but this should get some more streams in radio play because I don't think there's enough for this album. This is definitely a top Christmas release in my book. Yeah, I and uh, I'm not the biggest Christmas listener, but I do enjoy this album a lot. And with that being said, I'm ready to get into it and talk about these tunes. Let's do it. All right. So this album actually begins with a ballad. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. This was written in the 40s by Hugh Martin and Ralph Blaine. It was first performed by Judy Garland in the 1944 film Meet Me in St. Louis, a classic. But it was revised a bit by Frank Sinatra in 1957, and that version's actually become more commonplace to be covered. Even Judy herself performs that version on TV. So uh, there's that. And uh, Jermaine takes the lead on this one, which, nice change. He gets some good moments on this album, which I appreciate. And it makes sense for him to do it. I think it requires a bit more maturity than young Michael had at the time. So it was better to have Jermaine do this one. I think it's a nice version of it. I mean, he definitely doesn't have quite the heartache in his voice that Judy Garland has, but that's a, there's a different aim here, I think. I don't know. I think it's just kind of odd to open the album with a ballad. That's really my only thing to say about it. I don't think this is a great album opener i would have preferred something with a bit more pap i'm telling you man people are going to start thinking that we go over our notes together you literally just read my <laughs> notes off all the way through and i i'll start right there i wholeheartedly agree with you and my hot tea take for this track is i believe this should be the closer to the album because it reads like an outro to me especially when later in the song you go into a medley of we wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. 
that's an easy out for this album, in my opinion. I searched, I searched my feelings on why maybe, you know, try to jump in the Motown machine's brain and say, why are we opening with this? And I couldn't really find a true opener on the album. So maybe they felt that this was the opener. Also, it's a five minute. We'll throw it out there early on. It's a great solid track in its own right. You talk about the musicianship and this perfect vessel for these boys. Listen to Jermaine come right in with the sick bass line. I mean, just rolling it super, super proud, super, super on point. Exactly what we expect to hear from Motown. And then... As a group, the harmonizing and group mechanics are super in the spotlight right away. Maybe, maybe you know, maybe I'm answering my own question here. Maybe that is. Maybe this isn't the, the perfect vessel to give a rounded look at the Jackson 5 on track one. It just read a little bit to me like an, an outro, like a closer. Um, and it's just a tad long for me. Just a tad long. Well, your reasoning for why this is the album opener is a bit more optimistic than mine, because <laughs> mine is that, like I said, Motown put out product quickly. I don't think they always put a whole lot of thought into how their albums were arranged. Heard, heard. Because, uh, and interestingly, that would change months after this when Marvin Gaye released What's Going On, which heard. was called the greatest album of all time, but... The albums cited as the great Motown albums, they don't start until that release. Heard. So they're then, still poking at it at this point? No, they weren't thinking about it. Marvin kind of forced them to do it because Barry Gordy actually didn't think what's going on would be ahead. Wow. Yeah, because he had his way. And yeah. a lot of times he was right, but in some cases he was very wrong, including that one. But... That's enough about Marvin Gaye. We're not here to talk about him. We're here to talk about the Jackson 5's Christmas, though. Well, uh, I'll save that thought for later. But anyway, track number two is, I think, the radio favorite of this album, the Jackson 5 version of Santa Claus is Coming to Town. This song dates back to 1934. It was written by J. Fred Coots and Haven Gillespie. This one, based on the Billboard charts, is the highest charting version. So I'm guessing this is the choice version of the song for radio stations. And uh, I mean, I agree with that. I think that this is an appropriate song for this group because Michael takes the lead on this. And uh, I think this is one of the only times we really actually hear Michael Jackson be a kid on record. And it's nice to hear because he was a child, but think about it. I Want You Back is, an, is a song that could easily be sung by an adult. That could have very easily been given to somebody else at the label. Agreed. It's an adult love song, and I'll Be There certainly is an adult love song, and young Michael had the chops to pull it off, uh, but it's nice to hear him not have to play grown up and just genuinely have fun singing this song because this is probably one of the only versions of this song besides like a kid's bop rendition, where you would actually believe the person singing believes in Santa Claus. Yeah, that makes that makes total sense, uh, you know? And it also sets a great vibe for what we're going to get through the rest of the album. Um, other than that vocal that you're talking about, I, again, we go back to Jermaine, that bass line is crushing and gets more play musically than 
anything else other than that lead vocal. Such a solid, solid rendition of this song, too. And I say rendition, but this is what I'm looking for. We talked about this last week is your versions, not just cookie cutter. Let's put it down on paper versions, your versions or the artist versions of these songs. And this one is almost the epitome of that for me. Well, I'm, I might have to burst your bubble here. I'm going to tell you something. Um, so I'm not saying Jermaine didn't play the bass, Heard. but I think a lot of what you're hearing is from the very talented session musicians at Motown. Really? See, now I just took it for granted that he was jamming on this, right? Well, the issue is Motown didn't always credit them. Got you. These fantastic, amazing musicians, they just weren't always credited on the releases when they should have been, but they did it. There's even a documentary, I haven't seen it, called Standing in the Shadows of Motown about the Funk Brothers, who I think were gone by this point in time, but... They were those legendary Motown session musicians that gave those songs the kick they needed because a lot of Motown's groups didn't play instruments. They were just vocal groups. Man, so my, my, my vision of the Jackson 5 is deteriorating in front of my eyes as we speak, Charlie. It's terrible. To tell you. you know, I, it's crazy because looking into this and there's other times throughout this album that I went to be like, all right, who's doing this? Who's doing this? Where are we at? And you just answered my question or, or you just really let me know what I was looking at because it's almost impossible to find out who is exactly doing each piece, even down to the Jacksons inside of this album. And then looking back through Jackson five, trying to nobody really breaks it down. Uh, so wow, that, that's a, no. that's an eye opener. I mean, my copy of the it's a new reissue, but there's no liner notes in it. Heard wow, and I will say, I wonder if Michael Jackson took note of that because he definitely credited every musician in his liner notes uh, on his solo albums. I mean, you look at the credits for Bad, Heard. you will see everybody credited, and that's great that he did that. He definitely intentionally did things differently than the Motown way, such as releasing more than one single from the album, because this was the only official single, but it really didn't count as a single, and I'll Be There was still in really heavy rotation, too, so. Gotcha. But it did what it needed to do, and it's a uh, radio favorite, certainly, probably the go-to edition of this song for him, and I would agree with that. I would go with this version too. It makes sense to actually have a kid singing it. And again, Motown at its peak here. Maybe not quite its peak, but in a good place. So, but speaking of uh, cookie cutter renditions, I think that might be a good transition for the next song. The Christmas song, Chestnuts Roasting on an Open Fire. This one dates back to 1945. It was written by Robert Wells and Mel Torme. The most well-known version of this song is by Nat King Cole. He recorded it twice, but the version that you hear every year was done in 1961. And uh, that's definitely the version they're referring to the most here. And uh, this is a very nice song. Jermaine does a good job singing the lead on it. The problem is, for me, it isn't that different from the original for the most part, except for the bit of jingle bells at the end, which is kind of random. And I understand not wanting to mess with the arrangement because this is such a beloved song. Why 
if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But as a result, they don't really add anything too unique to it, unfortunately. And uh, I think that's the issue with, frankly, just about every version of this song, because it's like Nat King Cole did it. He killed it. His version's going to be played every year forever, but everybody else just does the same arrangement and it just doesn't work as well, no matter how gifted of a singer you are. And that's kind of my issue with this one. I don't hate it, but uh, could be better. No, it's it's nothing to hate. You you use the Christmas cookie cutter words perfectly. Um, the only, and, and again, like you said, that that Jingle Bells, Merry Christmas little medley at the end there is the only thing that really takes this out of being a cookie cutter rendition. Um, and that little tiny minor key change that has, I guess you could say a Motown, but more of a theatrical uh, finish to the end of the song. It's a quick three minute run. And uh, yeah, Nat, the Nat King Cole version, you know, stands alone. So it's it's. It's a high bar to even try to take a stab at. They they did an okay job. Yeah, I would agree. But fortunately, the next song, they did not do a cookie cutter version of. This one got flipped on its head. Up on the housetop, this was written in 1864 by Benjamin Hanby. But this is not the traditional version. So first off, we interpolate Here Comes Santa Claus. And then... uh, We have these new lyrics and arrangement written by a group of people called The Corporation. This is a, this is the Jackson 5 songwriting team at this point in time, because Motown was pretty well known for having hit writing teams. And this was theirs at this point in time. This group consisted of Barry Gordy, Alfonso Mazel, Freddie Perrin, and Deke Richards, So they'd already written classics like The Love You Save at ABC. And I have to say, the energy of those classic hits is here, too. This isn't just a great Christmas song. This is a great Jackson 5 song that can be enjoyed alongside those classics. I just have so much fun listening to it. And just you really do actually hear the brotherly relationship between the boys conveyed on it and... Again, this is a good song for kids to be singing. I really feel like on this album, they kind of chose a lot of the songs. It's like, kids sing this in school. We're going to have the boys do it. And that's the smart thing to do for this group. And uh, this is just a beautiful, brilliant arrangement that I never, ever get tired of. And this should be played on the radio every year. And it's not. And that's a shame. I wish I heard this way more on the radio. I totally agree with you. The corporation, man, when you said machine, I wanted so bad to start talking about the corporation. You talk about a group of hit makers, music machine crankers. I mean, these guys are the ones that are making it happen. Uh, I mean, even Perrin did stuff like... uh, I will survive for gainer and shake your groove thing. I mean, these are the minds behind what's going on right now. And it screams, you you know, you you take such a simple, simple Christmas song and really make it a great song for the Jackson five. Uh, My favorite part is right 
in the middle when they start to do this pitter patter pitter patter whisper jam and then michael does spoken word of the night before christmas right over top of it it's goosebumps i have goosebumps literally just talking about it but it's goosebump inducing music for either side of the coin for the for the random listener or for the diehard musician everything's here for you uh this is this is that this is that jam this is i mean this is a christmas classic for me i just wish more people got to hear it a bunch because this is that jam yeah because i actually did hear this so i was like in college and it was on a playlist and i heard i was like where has this been all my life this is fantastic hell yeah but we don't hear it every year and well we should frankly but the world isn't always there (laughs) The radio isn't always fair in particular, as we've learned on this podcast. And now we have another standard to be covered by the Jackson 5, another perfect kid Christmas song, Frosty the Snowman. This is actually the ender of side one. It was first recorded by Gene Autry in 1950, famously done by Jimmy Durante, written by Jack Rollins and Steve Nelson. Uh... This is a fairly straight reading of the song. It does have a bit of the wah-wah guitar in it, which I think differentiates it a bit. I don't think this is quite as infectiously fun as uh, Santa Claus is coming to town and up on the housetop. I feel like it's a bit more slowed down and just kind of, again, a straight reading. I don't think it's straight cookie cutter. I do think they Motown it up a bit as it should be. But I enjoy it, and I think it's a pretty good ender for the first side, because uh, on the second side, I think it shows that we're going to kind of go into a uh, slightly different sound there. And this is a good palate cleanser, like still joyful, but a bit more mid-tempo than what we might hear on the second side. Uh, Yeah, it makes total sense. I didn't even realize this was the first side closer. But straightforward is the word I use, just like you said, a straight reading. Straightforward. It's a neat composition. It's nothing that's going to knock your socks off. If you're looking for a Frosty the Snowman, real quick, it does the job, uh, especially in a Motown-esque sense. I've been trying for almost the whole week to figure out who sings the raspy part in this song where it's, it's like, talking about (laughs) frosty going down into the city and i'm just gonna believe that it's joe jackson (laughs) but i can't figure out who it is it probably is i was hoping you knew because i've been on the search if anybody listening knows if you don't know charlie if anybody listening knows please let me know because it's killing me, man. It is killing me. For right now, it's Joe Jackson in my mind. That's the only part of the song that's a little weird and takes me out for a yeah. second, but super curious to figure out who that is. If anybody who was at Motown in 1970 is listening, please let us know the credits for this album. Yes, please. That's all we need. That's <laughs> all we need. I know a lot of them have passed away sadly but (laughs) if you're out there please please Barry Gordy Diana Ross send them over (laughs) (laughs) but I digress we are now on to the second side which opens with the only religious song on the album the little drummer boy and again what a perfect if they're if a kid group is going to do a religious song this is the one to do 
because it's sung from the point of view of a child. So this goes back to 1941, written by K.K. Davis, Henry Onorati, and Harry Simone. Uh, I mean, really, this song, obviously based on the title, I think we know it emphasizes percussion, and it's killer on this arrangement because they know what they're doing here. Most of the Motown classic tunes have killer percussion, and uh, oh, they're doing it here, and but it's amplified by, again, young Michael Jackson. He makes this as uplifting as it should be, and uh, that's just beautiful. This has more spirit than when I had to sing it, certainly, because, uh, you know, he just really is feeling it, I think, and uh, probably my favorite rendition of Little Drummer Boy. Truly beautiful, in my opinion. Hot tea take. <laughs> oh, what's better? Please tell me what's better. I'll tell you. I'll get to it in a, in a, in a little bit. I'm not even going to say better. I don't mean to sound like a Scrooge on this one. And there is some beautiful Motown inside this. But as a lover of this song and someone who has always, always enjoyed this song for its narrative and for its way to, to narrate with music, I feel like this one... Its tempo is just a tad too fast. And the bass line that never stops, it takes me out of it. See, there's a natural crescendo inside of this song where a meek drummer boy gets to be proud and play fully to, to the newborn baby Jesus. And it's something that is so, so beautiful and done. If we want to go to, to where... I've seen it done better. Uh, I mean, of course, the one everybody knows is the Harry uh, Simeon Corral. Um, that's the one you hear the, you know, the kids singing it. But if you listen to Stevie Wonder do this, he understands that as well as he makes this natural crescendo that I think is lost. I wanted so bad to hear Michael come from meek to strong, but it's almost I'm giving my boy, my man, you know, I love Michael Jackson. I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt here. He's too young at this point to really understand or he wasn't told where this is coming from. So he, what I'm getting to is he's so strong, period, from the start of this song to the end of the song that I lose that natural crescendo. And for me, that's what the little drummer boy is. So yeah, this one this one actually falls super short for me, and it's one of my least favorite on the albums. Oh, that's the first time we have gone like polar opposite in a long time. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I actually haven't heard Stevie Wonder's version. It's a good but... one. It's a good one. Oh, I'm sure it is. It's Stevie Wonder. Come on. Yeah, but it's that natural progression. Um, and if even if you go back and listen to this one, it's I'm going to use your word here. It's it's a missed opportunity, I I believe, because this one could have been a Michael start low and belt it out. Now, this could have been up there with Ben. I mean, <laughs> we're, we're, this is real. <laughs> well, I mean, at least that he's not playing the drum for a rat. <laughs> as long as it's there, it doesn't matter who you're playing it for. You got to show me, you got to show me the uh, the passion of this song. And, and unfortunately, uh, this one was just a little, not a little bit. It was too upbeat and it, never, it was one uh, note, one note. Okay, I kind of do see what you're saying. I do get where you're coming from, but I really enjoyed it. And like I said, it's them doing something unique with it. And that's what I like about this album, because they're unique. It and is. it's not the same take on the same old songs. That's why I like this album. So This, this is true. This is true. However, 
we're going to talk about making songs unique. I'm not sure they do that for track seven. Another kid favorite, the other kid favorite, along with Frosty, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, uh, written by Johnny Marks in 1939. And the uh, most well-known version is by Gene Autry. Once again, that's a Christmas music king right there. I never really thought about it, but geez, he popularized a lot of these songs. Yeah, I, I, it was because they were doing like those radio kid specials and whatnot yeah. back then. He was doing his thing with it. So hats off to Eugene, wherever you are. For real, for real. <laughs> um, but this one uh, definitely has a bit more syncopation than that. But again, beyond that, this is a pretty straight take on the song. And uh, I understand not wanting to mess with it too much, but I'm going to say this is my least favorite here. They don't take enough liberties to make it unique. Like even Frosty... They did some new things. I felt like it was a Motown song. I just don't get that as much from this rendition of this song. And uh, I just don't think it's as unique of an arrangement as uh, the other tunes on this album. And uh, this is another song where, for me, if it's going to stand out, they need to do something new with it. Because it's been done so... You've heard it nonstop through the years. It's on TV every year. I haven't seen the special in a long time, but you get my drift. Kids sing it in school. This was one every year you sang this in music class. And understandably, it's an easy song to learn. It's a good song, but you've really got to do something new with it to make it stand out. Actually, my version of choice from this is actually Mary J. Blige's. I don't know if you've heard that. But I have indeed. You have, yeah. I like her somewhat jazzier take on it. Uh, I wish this one were closer to that, but Mary did hers over 40 years later. She wasn't even born when this album came out, so. Yeah, I agree with you. This is my least favorite song on the album. Um, I think they took a stab at something new, but it fell flat. Like, castanets right off the front and hand drums. Like, that's what we're choosing on this Motown album out of nowhere for Rudolph. It didn't make sense to me. Like, it was almost like a, a swung eighth note, like, it was a weird like island vibe there too. It just, it it didn't feel like it it hit correctly. You know, they I, I think they might've tried to do something, but, and I'm all about flipping Rudolph on its head. I My favorite two versions flip it. I won't say it flips it all the way around, but right up there, up top for me, it's either Dean Martin or Harry Connick Jr. Now Harry Connick Jr. hits with a big band styling and Dean, you know, it's a crooner where he's having fun calling him Rudy. But this one, ah, man, I just, there's a lot of choices here. We've seen them be so jovial with Michael throughout this album so far, and we still will. Like, why not let him do a fun run on, you know, the, the stuff the kids always say in between verses, like we've seen before, you know, like Monopoly. They oh, never, yeah. Let Michael do that. That would have been neat. Have fun with it. This one. Oof, man, I, I listened to this one a bunch too, and I don't like it. I kept listening to it. It just, uh, this was this was the miss for me. Okay, we're on the same page for that. <laughs> yeah. And you're right. Why would we have island instruments on a Christmas song? Yeah, I, I mean, unless 
Unless you're trying to say, no, are they fact, trying to say Meli Kaliki Maka or like Beach Boys? <laughs> was Beach Boys Christmas out yet? I don't know. Oh, yeah, that was so definitely out I, by if, this time. If they're trying to take a stab at some of that success, I guess I could see it, but not not on this one. You fell flat on your face yeah. on this one. No, but fortunately, the good news is nowhere but up from here. <laughs> That's the way I see it. And uh, now we have uh, the first of two original tunes for this album. This one is uh, track eight, Christmas Won't Be the Same this year. It was written by Pam Sawyer and Laverne Ware. Pam Sawyer's biggest songwriting credit at this point had been Diana Ross's Love Child, which is definitely one of the best uh, songs from the Supremes era. It's not actually a Supreme song, even though it's credited as one, but that's a different podcast. Heard that. And she later wrote um, her number one hit, Love Hangover, which is one that a lot of people enjoy a lot. So we have some professional Motown craftsmanship here and Jermaine takes the lead on this one. And uh, this is about missing an ex at Christmas, basically, which I think is something that's relatable for a lot of people. Yeah, I think it's a nice tune. I think the backing vocals do a good job of keeping it from being too down for this album because we want to keep things fairly upbeat. I mean, this is one, I don't love it or hate it. It's a nice song to listen to. It doesn't take away from the album, but it doesn't really add to it either. But I'll take it. I'll take yeah. it. I mean, it's Motown craftsmanship here. We, I'm, I'm glad to be back into what I'm loving about this album. And that is the Motown of it. Here we got a lost love song on, on a Christmas album. And even though we're talking about something that one, it rings true. You know, you're always going to think about maybe people that aren't with you anymore or lost love or around the holidays period. But I guess maybe I'm speaking for myself more so Christmas because it's a big one for me. Um, so I, I feel like this is there because of that. And it works because of that, because it's a real feeling and we can get down with it. And it does. it's not a downer on the Christmas album is what I'm saying. I really like the way the upbeat verses of this contrast with, with the refrain. Uh, I really love how it is because even when Jermaine's singing about like watching other people doing their Christmas stuff and we know he's still bumming out, it's still upbeat and, and it works well, uh, yeah. you know, without her loving arms. I, I love that. I love that. Uh, this is Motown Christmas, you know, uh, not, not a top Motown song or anything like that, but it, it's fun and it's done well. I think the thing I hate the most about it, I shouldn't use the word hate. The thing that I dislike the most about it is that the last line of this song, Jermaine's like, and hopefully next year you'll be back with me having dinner. Like Jermaine, go on, baby. You're, you're Jermaine Jackson. Don't worry about her. I don't care how new it was. If she's not going to be there for Christmas, don't worry about her next year. I but that is a real feeling, though, no, I, I, know. I have to say. So <laughs> they were tapping into that reality, and I appreciate that because that is very real. So Agreed, agreed. Yeah, I, I thought that was a neat way. I, I'll say it again. I think it's a neat way to not have, to to go and jump into that without having a downer on the album. So well done there. Yeah. Kind of the Motown Blue Christmas. Not as good, but kind of filling that role. Yeah, perfect analogy. I was trying to think of one, but that's the best I can think of. This Christmas gave me my heart. <laughs> Maybe oh, that <laughs> that's a, yeah, some of the best ones for that whole subgenre really do come later. 
than yeah. this one, but we went early into the Christmas music phenomenon, I feel like. But we did it, we did indeed. There's nothing wrong with that. We because we all gotta start somewhere, but heard, heard that perfectly said. And uh now we have another Motown Christmas song, the other original here. And the more well-known of the originals, Give Love on Christmas Day. This was written by the corporation. And Michael sings this one. And uh, this is his uh, most mature vocal here. It's about giving love during the holidays. And uh, again, that's kind of a good Motown message to be sending. I feel like Diana Ross would have sung this song really well, actually. Hearing it, it made me think of Diana Ross so much. But I don't know if she did a cover of it. I don't think she did. But it's not too late, Diana. So get on that. <laughs> Heard. But yeah, I do think that even though Diana Ross didn't sing it like I may have wanted her to, this song does showcase young Michael's maturity at this point in time. He's 12 and he has vocal gifts that many adults don't have, simply. And he only went up from here artistically. So... Uh, and it, that just says a lot. And this song's also been covered many times, too. And uh, again, I think that just says a lot about how it was done here. And I think that Michael still did have that wide-eyed innocence as much as he could do effectively convey this message at this point in time. Because later on, that wasn't going to happen. So, no, nope, not at all. This is early Michael. For me, and but you know, you know, I, I love me some Michael. This is early Michael, almost perfection. This is something I'd hand to somebody if I wanted to give him a snapshot of his career. If I had something early, I, this is one that I'd throw their way um, that they might not have heard. Such a beautiful song. I mean, of course, we're back with the corporation. You know, we're back with heavy hitters sitting down and making this, but this is a flawless composition, a flawless production, and, and Michael knocks it out of the park. This one is, is such a neat Christmas song, but the melody itself is up there musicality-wise as far as being able to be sang and one of the only people that could do it. Diana Ross would have been sick. And, you know, they have that connection, too. And she had to have seen that in young Michael, how how powerful his voice was and how much talent was there. But she would she would have been a cool one on this. And and that's one I'll, I'll try to look out and see if it was ever done. But this one, you know, can only be sung by someone like Michael and Corporation knew that. Yeah. Well, here's what I'm going to say. Diana is 78. But she still has a strong voice. Her voice has not faded with time, so it's not too late. So please, Diana, just do this for us. I know you can do it, girl. There you go. Or woman, whatever you want to be called. But no, the Jackson 5 were actually marketed as being presented by Diana Ross as she discovered them. Their first album is called Diana Ross Presents the Jackson 5. How crazy is that? I, I found that out while I was doing yeah. the research for this. So, so awesome. that was also pure marketing. She didn't really, but it was a smart marketing move. And they were, they were close for quite some time, Michael and Diana. Their relationship did change over time because of changes in Mr. Jackson's personal life. But she was a very important part of his life and uh, one that can't ever be discounted and a legend in her own right, of course, still going strong today. Most definitely. Gotta love it. But speaking of Motown legends, we've got a cover of another one for the penultimate track on the album. 
Someday at Christmas. This was written by Ron Miller and Brian Wells and first recorded by a band we mentioned earlier, Stevie Wonder. He recorded that song um, when he was 16 in 1966, he did this. And this is actually interesting to me because this is another example of a common Motown practice, which was on the albums because they were so singles focused. What would often happen is the artists would cover songs that were hits for other Motown artists, often on those albums and just have their own version of it. Like there are Supremes versions of Sugar Pie, Honey Bunch, and Love is Like a Heat Wave. Just because, well, it's their songs, more money for them makes sense. So this is the example of that here. And The Temptations actually recorded this song on their Christmas album the same year. So just that practice being used. Um, this is a Christmas classic tune, I think, too, in terms of being a Motown classic. This is a fine version, but it's not Stevie Wonder's version. That is the issue with it. It's, of course, similar to that because that's a Motown song to begin with, but... This isn't quite Stevie Wonder. It's a fine version. It's a good second choice, I guess, for the song, but uh, just not Stevie. That's all I can say. Yeah, it's definitely not on that level. It's a, it's a neat version. I'm totally with you there. The bass line is back. I'm, in my notes, I got Jermaine is back, but who knows what, who is playing that bass now. My, <laughs> my view has been crushed. I love the message of this song, period, though a message of the world with love and the world with freedom. This this one has always been akin to Lennon's Happy Xmas War is Over for me, uh, on, as far as that message of uh, of what we could be if we, if it was just Christmas all the time or the, or the spirit of Christmas uh, of giving to each other and loving each other was there. Uh, so I, I love this song, but yeah, you, you're totally right. And I'm right with you. It's just not that Stevie version. No, not quite. But not everybody can be Mr. Wonder. What can we say? That. But now we are at the end of it. And a bit of an odd closer, I think, but a great song for this album. I Saw Mommy Kissing Santa Claus. This was written by Tommy Boyd in 1962. And this is... A, the other one on here that the Jackson version is the go-to for many stations. And again, I think that makes sense because this is a kid singing it. And uh, I have a really deep interpretation of this one. So here we go. <laughs> so uh, Michael's performance on this song is very interesting to me because in his solo work, Paranoia is all over his songs in his adult career. I feel like we're hearing the first hints of that paranoia here, especially in that spoken word when nobody believes him. And he's saying, I did, I really did see mommy kissing Santa Claus. Like he really believes it and he's singing it with joy. But also I believe that this could have been a traumatic incident for this child to have thought, mommy's not with daddy, she's kissing Santa Claus even if Santa Claus might have been daddy, just dressed in a suit. But, you know, I really do think that maybe he was just singing it from that place of a, a bit of trauma. And I guess in a way, this is a somewhat traumatic thing that could happen for somebody. I'm not quite sure, but that's the vibe I'm getting. And again, that's young Michael 
bringing that maturity and depth to his vocal performance. Yeah, the, the depth is is right there. You, he perfectly conveys that feeling uh, of not being believed. I'm going to do terrible things because I don't remember the artist or how it was. But if I'm correct, when this song first came out, it was, man, I don't want to say banned from radio play. I think it was inside of the church. Long story short, the person who wrote the song had to go and really explain what it was about because it was read automatically as mama was cheating uh, when in fact what he was trying to say is it was just daddy dressed up as Santa Claus. Um, and, and hearing Michael be able to do that uh, and knowing the, the backstory was super, super awesome. This is my version of Mommy Kissing Santa Claus. This is the one I've always heard. This is the one I've always known. Uh, and this is the one that I'll put on every time if I want to hear this one. I gave hand drums a bunch of shit earlier in Rudolph. But for me, the break in the middle of the song where it's just like some synthesizer uh, and, and the hand drums, they work there. So good call leaving the hand drums around the studio for that one. Um, this this is, the this is again, my uh, mommy kissing Santa Claus. This is that one. I mean, what's the point of another one after this? I don't see it. I don't see it. This is it, people. This is it. This is the one. And uh, this is that album. That's the album. Heard. Yeah, there were some reissues with a Michael bonus track called Little Christmas Tree. It's yeah. it's cute. I think whoever wrote it probably wrote it after watching the Charlie Brown Christmas. That's my favorite part about the song. It's a cool little song, but the writing credit is to George Clinton of George Clinton and the P-Funk Funkadelic, right? It's yeah. it's him and Artie Wayne. And I've listened to it over and over again. It's a cute song, but I, George must have been on some really just chilled back there vibes because nothing inside there sings George Clinton to me. And I went back and made sure I was correct on this, but George Clinton has the writer's... Uh, notes on this one <laughs> it, that's just the power of a charlie brown christmas let's be real <laughs> it can change george clinton <laughs> yes it can change anyone even george clinton i i'm with you on that but that was recorded later for a different project but alas we have the jackson five christmas album and uh, in your Pantheon of Christmas albums. What grade do you give this one? Where is it for you? You know, a guy by the name of Joshua Alston of the AV Club once said, the Jackson 5 Christmas is tough to compete with because it isn't, and as most Christmas records so often are, an inessential brand extension or bait for discography completionists, okay? It's a wonderful potent distillation of the spirit of Christmas, an album joyful enough to make me feel like it's the most wonderful time of the year rather than telling me. And I can't agree more. Um, a great Christmas album gets you going and it makes you feel the holidays. And even though some of the tracks on here didn't exactly hit for me, it still did that all the way through this album. And for that, the Jackson 5 Christmas album gets an A from me. All right. I'm going to go with A minus. And that's because not every song is quite hitting it for me, but I completely agree with that article's point about this album. This 
really does what a Christmas album should do. And for that, I mean, what else are you going to do? This is definitely a classic Christmas album for me. It's not my go-to genre, but this is one I will go back to. Most definitely. Time and again. So, yeah, Jackson 5, you did it. What's your favorite? Congratulations. My bad. What's your favorite uh, track on the album? Up on the Housetop. You already know that. (laughs) (laughs) I knew we were together on that one. That is... There's no contest there. No. You you want to take a song and do your own take on it, especially a Christmas song. Whoo, you did it on that one. You did it. Corporation, you got it on that one. Barry Gordy, you got it on that one. And the Jackson 5, you guys got it on that one, I'll tell you. Yes. Yes, they did. And uh, before we wrap up our look into Christmas music, because it's a bit short this month, because we're doing something else too, I have to ask you one thing. What is your favorite Christmas song, period? Ooh, shit. Without any notice? It's like asking my favorite fish song. Ah, Christ. Favorite Christmas song of all time uh, would be Sleigh Ride. Ooh. Whether whether the words are there or if it's just that beautiful composition done, I've had the glory of uh, being able to to play it many times in my life um, with with a couple different bands throughout, and it's always been my favorite. It it narrates, it does its thing. So sleigh ride for me. Oh, what's your definitive version then? Because that's one's been done a lot. Uh, I'm going to have to go with just the straight, no vocal, uh, instrumental. That oh. is, that is my, I was going to say the Ronettes are where it's at for that. <laughs> heard that, heard that. That's a good one. The Ronettes don't get enough play either, but we talked about I heard them too. yesterday. <laughs> I was very happy to. <laughs> I love it. What about you? Favorite Christmas song I, of all time? Well, I asked this question because I wanted to share it. My favorite Christmas song. It's changed a bit over time, but I wanted to say the best Christmas song ever in my book is Christmas Rapping by the Waitresses. Ooh, I don't know it. You stumped me. Yes, you do. I don't know by title. You know, it's like Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas, but I think I'll skip this one this year. Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas. With the horns, yes, those horns are killer and. What I love about it is it is a fun, lively Christmas tune, as a good Christmas song should be, but it acknowledges that the holidays can be crazy. It really does in its lyrics. If you listen to it, it's about how the holidays are stressful. It it definitely did. I thought thought you were going to give us the uh, Christina Aguilera version of uh, the Christmas song. (laughs) Because you were saying you were thinking about doing that album. Uh, We didn't touch on it earlier, but you know she's the only one that ever broke Nat King Cole for uh, for charting higher with that song? Oh, I believe it. Oh, Her yeah. version's good. Actually, no, the real banger on that album is the opening tune, Christmas Time. I heard that. But... <laughs> hey, there you go. That's our next year's. <laughs> it, it might be, but I kind of wish we could do more holiday albums, but our year is also coming to a wind down, and there's been quite a bit put out this year. And as a result, I thought it would be a good idea for us to discuss an album from this year to represent that end of year thing. And 
I feel we're jumping from Christmas to this, but it is what I'm going to do because it's a discussion-worthy album. Uh, next week, we will be discussing Taylor Swift's Midnight's. I am a Swifty a bit, if I haven't made that clear already. So I'm excited to dive into it. Uh, what I will say is that there are two different editions of the album, but because the second edition is quite a bit longer and has a lot going on, there's already a lot to discuss in the main album. We are just going to discuss the 13-track album for Midnight's is what we're going to do. If you want us to, we could definitely do a bonus episode about the bonus tracks because those are pretty cool to discuss too. But let us know if you want us to do that. But I've decided we're just going to stick with the 13 track concept that she envisioned. So that's what we're going to do. So meet us at midnight for midnights. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, while you're waiting for that, before midnight, you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Turntables and Tea Podcast. Subscribe to us wherever you're listening to us. Leave us a nice rating. Say nice stuff. And until then, don't be an anti-hero. Peace.